So what I thought I'd do this morning is, um, some of you may already be acquainted with um, the hypothesis of a book I wrote called The Master and His Emissary, which is uh, uh, about uh, the lateralization of the brain. And I thought that um, some of you will not, and that it would be worth um, giving you a sort of uh, a, a cook's tour of that this morning, and then in the afternoon to talk about uh, some spiritual implications. Uh, there are many, but um, the ones I was thinking of exploring are to do with the positive power of negation, of emptying, of nothing. But I'm, I'm starting with a picture of something, actually quite a lot. And it seems to me that one of the first things is to say is that science often seems very reductive and making connections between the brain and other things uh, can sometimes be no more than a description of important human feelings and experiences at um, a rather unhelpful level, like um, getting a lecture on the wiring behind your television rather than being able to watch the program. But um, I just want to start with a thought about the world. The way in which we think is very much to do with parsimony. We mustn't uh, suggest anything that is not really necessary. This is called Occam's razor. Um, and it's a, a good logical principle. But the world um, seems to me to work on a different principle, which is completely unnecessary superabundance, superfluity, a self-perpetuating, self-delighting uh, process that is completely more than anything we either could know or require and evokes in us, in the right mood, feelings of gratitude and awe and I think some tenderness. So I uh, call this uh, Occam's day off because <laughs> he clearly wasn't around when the world was being created. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about the meaning of life and of the world, which of course is a small topic, so I'll get that done in the first quarter of an hour. Um, but uh, I want to just make some reflections on meaning because I think it has to do with the subject of the two hemispheres, which I'm going to come on to. Um, Owen Barfield pointed out the rather odd thing that the more we became aware of how to exploit and use the world, the less meaning we found in it. And I think that has something very much to do with the hemisphere hypothesis, because I'm going to suggest that one of our hemispheres is principally there not to provide understanding of the world, but to help us manipulate and use it, and that the other hemisphere is uh, to help us uh, come to an understanding of it, but that's rather to, to rush on. It might be helpful because, of course, everybody knows that the whole business of differences between the right and left hemispheres is rubbish. And so uh, how did I end up with this rather bizarre um, cross to bear that I go around the place saying, well, actually, it's not rubbish at all. And when you first mention that you're writing about, to a scientist, that you're writing about differences between the brain hemispheres, because they all know that was sort of exploded long time ago, their sort of eyes glaze over with a mixture of boredom and pity, and one feels, you know, like, why, why, why do I even try? 
Um, but I, I, it would help you understand how I came to this if I give you a little bit of um, a, a personal journey. Um, I went to uh, Oxford to study theology and philosophy, uh, and at that point my intention was to become a monk. Um, fortunately for everybody, um, that was something I clearly saw was not my path later, but uh, at the time that's what I wanted to do, and when I presented myself I was told you can't do that, theology and philosophy is not an honours degree, you must do an honours degree. Now unbelievably in Oxford in 1971 uh, theology and philosophy wasn't an honours degree. I mean nowadays you can get an honours degree in Frisbee, but in those days that was not the case. So, um, uh, more or less, because I ha you had to set the entrance exam in something, and I'd slightly at random chosen English, um, and my tutors encouraged me to do, who examined me encouraged me to do that, so I did that. And I found that while I enjoyed the time I spent enormously, and literature is a lifelong passion of mine, along with music, I found that the process that I was being asked to subject literature to had problems. Uh, and these are problems that I later wrote about in a book called Against Criticism, uh, which was published in 1982 by Faber and unceremoniously pulped, pulped a few years later um, after selling a handful of copies. Rather pleasingly, if you try to buy a copy of this on Abe Books at the moment, you can have one for £1,732. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so... Um, Anyway, uh, in that book, what I was trying to get at was that literature is not just a bunch of ideas. Literature are poems, are plays, are novels, are living things that were left by someone who lived before me to form a bridge to convey meaning. And in order to do so, it had three principal qualities. It was entirely unique. In other words, if you hadn't actually acquainted yourself with the poems of Hopkins or Hardy, you could never have imagined them. There'd just be a Hardy or Hopkins-shaped hole in the universe. And the greater the artist, the more true this is. So there's a uniqueness about the work of creation. That's the first thing. The second is that it is implicit, that it is no good paraphrasing a poem. It's rather like explaining a joke. The meaning and the point evaporate. And it has occurred to me that many of the most powerfully important things in our lives have this quality that they need to remain implicit. It's true about art, but it's also true about religious experience it's true about love, and it's true about sex, that when they are dragged into the spotlight of attention and made explicit, they change their nature utterly. In fact, it's true of everything, but these are very clear cases. And I suppose the third thing was that a work of art was embodied. That's very important. It wasn't just a bunch of ideas in the abstract. And it worked on me as an embodied being. It was an encounter between two embodied parts of the universe. In other words, in reading a poem, those things happen to you physiologically. 
you can feel, in fact, you can record it with an electromyogram, that the muscles in your body below the level of consciousness tense and relax themselves in response to the movement. Similarly, of course, it can affect your blood pressure, your pulse, it can bring tears to your eyes, it can make your hair stand up. It can do many things to you as a physical embodied being. There is flow in poetry and there is flow in your blood. Flow is a very important topic that I don't have time to deal with today, but I'm currently trying, struggling to write about. Anyway, there it was, this unique, embodied, implicit being. And then along comes the critic, the clever critic, and turns it into something abstract, general, and explicit, which works in the entire opposite uh, direction of the intention of the artist. So I wrote this book against criticism and I went off to go back to philosophy and this time psychology because I realized that this problem in uh, the criticism of literature was to do with our embodied being. It was about the mind-body relationship. And I went to the philosophy seminars and they were fine, but I felt that the philosophers were altogether too disembodied in their approach to this. It was all very cerebral stuff. Uh, and I decided that instead I would go off and study it at close to first hand by training in medicine and becoming acquainted with what happens in people's lives when something changes in their mind and it has an impact on their body or something changes in their body or their brain and it has an impact on their experienced world. And right about that time Oliver Sacks was writing, he published Awakenings which had a very powerful influence on me. If you only know it as a film, please read the book. It's very different. Most of the meat of it is in the footnotes, which films somehow passed by. So um, all these things were possible. I had seven years of leisure. I had a fellowship, and I gravitated. I, I wrote this book against criticism during that time. I gravitated through philosophy to the idea of studying medicine. I went and did that, and then I... Uh, started to specialize in the interface between mind and body, neurology and psychiatry. Um, and I did a, a year in a neuro center and then I went to uh, the Maudsley and trained as a psychiatrist. And there one day, um, something very strange happened to me. Um, there was a lecture posted that I hardly ever bothered to go to the lectures actually. And I thought, well, shall I have another cup of coffee or shall I go to this lecture? I thought, oh, I might as well go to the lecture. And the lecture was by John Cutting, uh, who was a um, psychiatrist at the Maudsley Hospital in the Institute of Psychiatry, who had done something very remarkable. Uh, when people uh, have strokes, they have different effects depending on whether they're in the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere, and you probably know something about that, uh, that the hemispheres control largely movement on the opposite side of the body. And, so, and uh, in most right-handers at any rate, 97% of them speech is in the left hemisphere. In the case of left-handers, because I know there will be left-handers and they'll want to ask, 60% uh, is still in the left hemisphere, but 40 in the right. Uh, and so often after a left hemisphere stroke, somebody loses speech and loses use of their right hand, which is their right hand. And so doctors who are simple and busy folk um, were able to notice that when somebody had a left hemisphere stroke, they'd stop talking and couldn't move their right hand. 
but uh, everybody knew that the right hemisphere didn't do anything, and indeed after a right hemisphere stroke, people said they were fine and were quickly sent home. Actually, it turns out that, as a matter of fact, it is much easier to rehabilitate somebody after a left hemisphere stroke, even though they've lost speech and use of the right hand, than it is after a right hemisphere stroke, for the simple reason that after a right hemisphere stroke, we lose the understanding of the world. When you have a left hemisphere stroke, you don't. You use the ability to use the word either through language or through grasp. The left hemisphere controls the right hand, which is to say we grasp things, including the aspect of language, not all of language, but the aspect with which we say we grasp things, we pin them down. But after a right hemisphere stroke, the world alters. And I don't have time, it would be very interesting, I know, but I have limited time, to go through many interesting neuropsychiatric syndromes in which the world is completely altered for people. They think that people are copies of somebody they know. They, um, they think that parts of their body don't belong to them. They, um, they have paranoid delusions. They, they, there are all kinds of strange syndromes. And they almost all are either exclusively following a right hemisphere stroke or very largely following that. So something was going on, and what John Cutting had done is patiently sat down at the bedside of people with right hemisphere strokes for about 20 years and talked to them about what the world seemed like. And he found this extraordinary range of things that went uh, wrong, as it were, or, or were changed in the world of people with a right hemisphere stroke. And I went to this lecture, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing, because what he was saying is the right hemisphere understands the unique case. The left hemisphere is interested in generalization. And in doing so, it is abstracting. It is trying to see general uh, categories of things. And in doing so, it takes them out of the context in which they inhere, takes them out of their embodiment, and makes them abstract. And things that you could have found somewhere else, rather than the unique things that were there in reality. Uh, and it also understands implicit meaning, i.e. tone of voice, facial expression, body language, but also the aspects of language that are implicit, irony, humour, wit, metaphor, whereas the left hemisphere tends to take this all very literally. So after a right hemisphere stroke, people take utterances entirely at face value, as though the computer were able to look up the words in a dictionary and was given rules of syntax and could compose... Uh, utterances that had meaning. But it's in fact the right hemisphere that understands the meaning of an utterance in context. So the, 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 the um, hemispheres cooperate in their understanding of language as they cooperate in their uh, understanding of everything. But the, the basis of language in the original thought and the ultimate understanding of it as an utterance in its context depends on the right hemisphere. It's one of the kinds of meaning. There are many. And of course, the, the right hemisphere, understanding these unique things, these implicit things, and, and these embodied things, doesn't have speech. So it has to send this information to the left hemisphere to be articulated. But unfortunately, the left hemisphere doesn't really understand these things. And so it doesn't really see the point of this because it understands what it knows, which is that things make more sense when they're 
couched in general terms, uh, abstracted and, ser and given serial or linear expression. So after the talk, I, I went and uh, exchanged words with him and, and we cooperated in research for a while and that began me on a path of, of about 20 years of looking at the literature on hemisphere difference. Now, um, while I was uh, in, just to finish this story of my, my progress, <laughs> uh, when I was in America, I was in uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore in 1992 in the neuroimaging lab looking at asymmetry of the brain in schizophrenia, which is a very interesting topic. People with schizophrenia tend to lack the normal asymmetry of the brain uh, and sometimes have a reverse asymmetry. Uh, and what that exactly means and how it works was a thing of enormous interest. Anyway, while I was there, I got an excited postcard, this was long before email, from John Cutting saying, you've got to read this book. And this book was a book by Louis Sass, S-A-S-S, called Madness and Modernism, subtitled Insanity in the Light of Modern Art, Literature and Thought. And... Uh, I, knowing that John was a very interesting and insightful man himself, if he thought this was so exciting, I certainly thought I ought to read it. And it was the other thing that really changed my, my, my life. John Cutting's book, um, The Right Hemisphere and Psychiatric Disorders, published by OUP in 1990, and Sass's Madness and Modernism in 1992, uh, were the two most formative influences on my thinking. What Louis Sass had done, and it is a marvellous book that I do recommend to you, you will enjoy it. It's beautifully written, it's very clear, and takes you into some subtle areas, but doesn't presume you will understand them. It explains them very nicely. Um, he uh, was a he's a psychologist, with a, uh, he's a professor at Rutgers, um, who has a great understanding of... Uh, and not just psychology, but of literature and philosophy and the arts in general, and brings these together in order to make a rather interesting point that the phenomenology of schizophrenia, in other words, the things that happen in the world of the person with schizophrenia, the changes that happen in that world to their perception of the world, to their understanding of the world, are also mirrored in the changes in perception, the changes in understanding that are found in modernism and postmodernism. Now, that's in itself a very interesting finding, of course. But it was electrifying to me because I already knew from John Cutting's work that there are enormous overlaps between the phenomenology of the person with a right hemisphere stroke and the phenomenology of the person with schizophrenia. In other words, the, the, the sort of abnormalities of the schizophrenic world are also abnormalities after a right hemisphere stroke. And that was fascinating, because he was suggesting, not of course that our whole culture has suddenly developed schizophrenia, but as far as I could see, that what was happening is that we were neglecting, denying, refusing right hemisphere understandings of the world. And that made me think perhaps there were other periods in the past when they were not so misunderstood and there was a more fruitful harmony or balance of these points of view. And that led me to write this book, um, uh, The Master and His Emissary, uh, subtitled uh, modestly, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And um, 
uh, in the second half of the book, I do a sort of uh, run through of Western civilization from ancient Greece to modern times in 300 pages, but it's not, I mean, it seems an absurd task and it is hubristic, but uh, it's not quite as bad as it sounds because what I'm really doing is just saying, how about if we look at these movements in the history of ideas through the lens of what we know about the differences between the hemispheres? Where do we see balance? Where do we see imbalance? Now, enough about that, and let's come on to the hypothesis itself. Now, most people have uh, ideas about what the right and left hemisphere do, and uh, this one, which I have um, titled Right and Wrong, is uh, something I found on the internet from one of the better sites, actually, um, and it purports to say all kinds of things about hemisphere differences that are often said, um, but it is uh, almost complete... Uh, it's a church, or it's almost complete rubbish. And uh, <laughs> uh, only one of them actually is correct, and there's a free pizza for anyone who spots it. But uh, anyway, put out of your mind all the things you've heard about hemisphere differences, because the scientists that were skeptical about this were entirely right. People used to say, you know, the left hemisphere is down to earth and rational and linguistic, and the right hemisphere is pink and fluffy and creative in some marvelous way. Um, but all of that is completely untrue. However, um, the question doesn't go away because the brain is uh, very clearly of a rather odd structure. Now, uh, this lugubrious-looking gentleman um, has just had the top of his head removed, and uh, the, uh, his left hemisphere has been somewhat drawn aside there to reveal the band of fibres at the base of the brain called the corpus callosum. Um, in the past, it was not known what it did. Somebody suggested it was there to sort of act like a, a bolster to top, stop the brain from sagging. Um, but actually, it is the main uh, connection between the two hemispheres of the brain. But it sets one thinking because the brain is no more than a set of connections. Its whole power is in the connections it can make. And there's something slightly odd about the fact that uh, an organ that exists entirely to make connections should be divided whoppingly down the middle. Only 2% of neurons actually cross the corpus callosum. And indeed, over the history of evolution, the size of the corpus callosum in relation to the hemispheres of the brain has got smaller, not larger. So there's a bit of a puzzle there. And the brain is also profoundly asymmetric. I don't know if, no, sorry, that's to show you, um, this really to make another point, which is that, um, I think we'll come back to it. Uh, <laughs> okay, the brain is asymmetrical. Uh, here you're looking confusingly at the base of the brain. Somebody said to me, what's that interesting white button on the top of the head? Uh, that's not a white button at the top of the head. That's the top of the, brainstem at the base of the brain. And um, because of a helpful anatomical convention, the right hemisphere is on the left and the left hemisphere is on the right. Um, but what this basically shows, and I'm sure you can see it, is that um, the brain is asymmetrical in a couple of respects. Uh, one is that, oh, hello, that's done something. That's there we go. I can point. Well, I can point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here, the 
than over here. It juts behind and is more expanded. And that was always said to be because of language, which is a distinguishing feature of human beings, and that because it's a very important function, it needs to be kept in one place, it just happens to end up in the left hemisphere. Well, that's wrong for a whole host of reasons. First of all, being that language is not um, exclusive to human beings, but I mean, that's a kind of language, certainly is, I accept that. But here's a puzzle. That same uh, abnormality there uh, is present in pre-linguistic man. We know that from looking, the, from looking at the skull shapes of um, uh, fossils from uh, pre-linguistic uh, hominids. Uh, and uh, uh, we also know that uh, the great apes, the gorillas, the bonobos, the chimpanzees, and, uh, and uh, so on, have the, this very same expansion, but they don't have language in terms of teaching language to fail. So that's clearly not right. Also, we know that language is, I've said this already, in both hemispheres anyway, so that's a totally not started. The other interesting thing is that up here, there is actually the single most asymmetric part of the brain, which is in the right frontal cortex, which is juts forward and is more expanded here than on the left. And that, that is the biggest asymmetry of the brain. It wasn't mentioned in medical school because everybody knew the right hemisphere didn't do anything, so it was a bit of an embarrassment. Actually, the right hemisphere uh, frontal patellia, uh, that area, it was the, uh, probably the last part of the brain to, uh, to expand in that way. And it is actually the source of many things that really do uh, uh, distinguish human beings, the capacity to be a social animal in the, to the extent that we are, to see into and understand and empathize with other people, um, and to interpret the meaning of what they are doing. So uh, the brain is asymmetrical. Uh, it looks as though somebody's given it a twist, a clock, which is what those arrows are there for. Uh, and as a result, it's called Yakovlevian talk after the man Yakovlev who first described it. Um, but the two hemispheres of the brain are also asymmetrical in every single way that can be measured. So they are different weights, they're different shapes, they're different sizes. They have different gray to white matter ratio, they have different sulcal gyral patterns on the surface, that's to say the convolutions are characteristically different on the two sides. They have different cytoarchitecture, i.e. the structure, deep structure of the neurons in certain regions, at any rate, of the right and left hemisphere. They respond differently to neuroendocrine hormones, and they have different preponderances of, employ different preponderances of neurotransmitters. So there is nothing about them that is equal. Uh, and so to say that they're just the same uh, is a bit of a non-starter, frankly. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, that's, there's, there's nothing in it. In fact, if you were a clinician, uh, rather than the brain scientists or the people who are poo-pooing it, brain scientists are very powerful and important people. We depend very much on their work, which is often extremely detailed, um, but they don't spend a lot of time with patients. Um, if they actually spent time with human beings, they'd know what every doctor knows, which is that after a right hemisphere or a left hemisphere stroke, we have completely different uh, experiences for the human being. Uh, and people say things like, oh, well, they really have the same structure. You know, uh, for example, sight. You know, there's a dorsal and a ventral stream. There's the eye. There's the optic radiation. Uh, there's the colliculi uh, and so forth. Same in each hemisphere. But <laughs> that's rather like asking me to say, what's the difference between 
Fox News and Al Jazeera was, and saying, well, I don't think there's any difference, really. They both have a newscaster who sits behind a desk, and there's a camera and there are wires that go to something that broadcasts a signal. Perfectly correct. But the content of the broadcast is entirely different. And the content of the broadcast by the two hemispheres, we're looking at the human phenomenological level, is quite different. Uh, just to go... Uh, well, I think, yes, that's the book. Uh, plug, plug. Um, now, why do we have these two different uh, hemispheres? I, although the human neuroscientists had given up sort of thinking about this question, the animal ethologists had patiently carried on doing what scientists are supposed to do, which is to observe. And uh, they had not been frightened off by the Volvo ad, a car for your right brain. So they just actually looked at birds and animals and saw what do they do differentially with their left and right hemispheres. And with many birds and animals, it's easy to see because the right and left eye are on the sides of the head and they therefore cross-wire to the other hemisphere pretty much completely. It's not true in human beings. The left eye feeds to both hemispheres. The right visual field, in other words, goes to... Um, uh, to the left hemisphere, not the right eye. And the left visual field of both eyes goes to the right hemisphere. That's because we've got eyes on the front of our head. Um, we're predators, and, uh, but for animals and birds that are not, they have them on the sides, and so you can observe it. And what they noticed was that birds solved, and animals solved a, uh, a problem of survival which is how to eat and stay alive, which I know is not a difficult one in London in 2016. But for many animals and birds is because they've got to be able to pay uh, entirely devoted attention to a tiny particle of something that they're intent on very precisely picking up uh, or catching, getting their food uh, or picking up a twig to make a nest. These, these utilities have to be very finely calibrated. But if they're only doing that, they will become someone else's lunch while they're getting their own because they need to keep the exact opposite attention at the same time, which is broad, open, sustained, vigilant, and not committed as to what it may find. And this relational attention is how birds and animals are aware of the presence of enemies, but also the presence of their kin and bond with their kin. So these um, differences are... Um, quite significant in terms of how animals use the two hemispheres. And indeed, this is largely true of human beings. I don't think this is at all uh, controversial. I don't think you'll find any neurologist who would deny that the right and left hemisphere pay different attention to the world. After a right hemisphere stroke, when you're therefore relying on the left, there is uh, what's called a pathological narrowing of the window of attention. And so... That is quite clear all through the phylogenetic tree. Now, to begin with, the fact that attention was different didn't hit me. Um, but then I realized that, from a philosophy point of view, that attention is incredibly important because attention is what creates the world. It creates the only world that we can have any knowledge of, which is the world that comes into our experience. And that world is mediated by attention. Attention is, in fact, the way you dispose your consciousness towards the world. 
And if you need to dispose it in two ways at once, the only way you can do that is by having two neuronal masses, each of which is capable of supporting attention to the world in its own right. And those are the two cerebral hemispheres. But they also need to maintain independence. So they need to communicate with one another, yes, but they also need to inhibit one another because there are mutually incompatible things that are being um, communicated. Uh, because they have different qualities, these two worlds. They're both necessary, they both have an aspect of truth, but they are not, strictly speaking, compatible. And people say, but I don't, you know, I don't experience that. Well, that, of course, is right, and that's why I put in that slide there, because uh, that's the center in the midbrain, which is the top of the brain stem, where there is a meta-control center which uh, sends data preferentially to one or the other hemisphere at the millisecond level, and it's well below the level of consciousness, so we don't know that this is happening. Indeed, if we did know it was happening, it would stop us in our tracks. We would never have survived. Uh, that is really just to show that it is quite logical to think of the two hemispheres as being important constituents in their own right of consciousness, because Although we now know that the idea that there are little tiny modules in the brain that do do something is wrong in the sense that they all act concertedly with many other parts of the brain, so we're always looking at expanded networks. The two big networks that are very strongly interconnected in themselves are each hemisphere. And those tracts, the unsonate fasciculus and the longitudinal fasciculus, uh, important white matter tracks, which uh, the white matter is called white because it's white, and it's, it's white because it's covered in myelin, which is a fatty substance which enables neurons to transmit more rapidly. So these are the highways, if you like, of the brain, drawing together multiple regions and making sense out of the experience of the whole hemisphere. And they're the latest the sophisticated part of the brain to myelin. And they don't violate until the young adult, around the time that people tend to develop schizophrenia if they're going to. And it's thought that failures in the myelination of these tracts are partly, at any rate, responsible. So, um, there we are. Now, this uh, slide is um, in there partly because it's, it's lovely and it's where I live on Sky. And um, that's the mountain behind my house. And it gives the name to the place where I live, which is Talisca. And yes, it is where the famous uh, whiskey comes from. Uh, and the, the name Talisca comes from a Norse word, meaning sloping rock. And as you can see, its outline from the sea was very characteristic. And what this means is that when Norsemen came here uh, to Sky about a thousand years ago, this was a landmark to them that meant the difference between life and death because this is a famously treacherous place. And so that, that mountain was a landmark to them. But to the Picts who'd lived in its shadow, as we know, because their brochs are still there for a thousand years before that, it was both physical shelter and the home of the gods. When people started coming there in the 18th, 19th century to draw it, it was a wonderful form of color and texture. When geologists started coming there in the 19th century, they found it to be an extraordinary example of columnar basalt formation. People have wondered about mining it. I don't think they'll get away with it. But, and for those people, it means prosperity and, and fortune. Uh, and to a physicist, it's 99.99% nothing with 
a few probabilistic elements whizzing around that we don't really know the nature of. Now, all of those descriptions are perfectly good accounts of the mountain. They are all truths about the mountain. They're not mutually easily compatible, but they are all true. There isn't a single real mountain behind those. There is only the mountain we get to know. And what we know in encounter with that mountain is dependent on the kind of attention we pay. So how we attend to the world creates the world we experience. Now, if you put together two things, it is undisputed that the two hemispheres attend differently to the world. And it is pretty much undisputed by philosophers that attention alters the nature of experience. Then it is bound to be the case that these two hemispheres subtend, bring into existence, help us to sustain two versions of the world, both of which we need for different reasons, but which have different characteristics. Now, what I'm suggesting is there is no right royal path to the truth. There is no way of finding out what the first step of certainty is and then adding another one and therefore building up a picture of the truth. There is no privileged way into this hermeneutic loop. Like these hands that draw themselves by M.C. Escher, we have to start somewhere with a stab at what it is we think we see. Now, when we do that, we will get a response from reality which accords with the model we bring to bear on it. So if, for example, we think of the body as a machine, we are rewarded by finding machine-like elements to the body. The problem is we don't see, and we're not aware that we're not seeing, the non-machine-like elements, but we do see the machine-like elements, and so we think the machine is a very good model uh, to use. And so we carry on and we find again we get responses and so we get stuck into a certain model. Now all of the way in which we understand things has this quality, not just science. When we say I understand something, what it means is it's like something, sufficiently like something else that I think I can say I already understand, that I'm able to say I understand this. So we are always modeling and the model or the metaphor changes what we find. Now, the right hemisphere sees a world in which there is linear causation because it's narrowly focused on a causative stretch, which is I see that uh, object of prey, I reach out my hand and I get it. And therefore, in its world, it is obvious that the way you achieve things is by going from A to B because A leads to B. And if you expand out from this, you, you end up with a sort of universe in which there is, everything is determined by causation. Actually, at, when you start looking at the whole picture, you see that causation breaks down in this simplistic way. You'll get into the area of systems which don't obey these rules and are not in principle predictable or knowable, not just that we don't yet have the way of doing it, but they simply can't be predicted or known fully. And so the right hemisphere, which sees a different, broad, living world, sees that A doesn't lead to B. It sees something much more complex, and its knowledge is much harder to convey. It's money for old rope to articulate the mechanistic vision of the left hemisphere. Believe me, it's extremely difficult. <laughs> I spent 20 years trying to do it, articulating the vision of the right hemisphere. Now, um, one of the things that happens to the world when you have a right hemisphere stroke is that you lose depth. Now, Isaiah Berlin said that depth is a very important element in the experiential world that has not been sufficiently explored by philosophers, and it can't really be replaced by any other idea, such as it's beautiful or clever or complex or interesting. Depth has some other meaning. And interestingly, that depth of meaning and depth of experience evaporates with right hemisphere damage.
So, for example, example, three things that are very clearly kinds of depth disappear. One is depth in space. The sense of inhabiting a world in which you can go out into something rather than being presented with a virtual world which is screen-like. So the left hemisphere represents the world in 2D. In time, it also loses depth. There is something like the stretch or duration of time. But time to the left hemisphere is a series of points. I mean, this is a fascinating subject about which I'm writing at the moment and would be a subject of a whole day, so we won't go there unless somebody wants to take me back to it later. But believe me that when people have a right hemisphere stroke, time becomes a series of slices or points rather than having uh, flow. And the other thing that happens is emotional depth goes. Rapport disappears, the sense of empathy for other people disappears, and a sort of superficial or fatuous kind of affect, which is what doctors call the way in which emotion is expressed, uh, supervenes. So they become uh, rather sort of fatuously humorous or, or angry or irritable, but they don't have depth of empathy, sympathy, and feeling. These are generalizations. To illustrate the loss of the sense of depth in space, this is taken from Gazzaniga and Ledoux, and is uh, a patient uh, who had the procedure called commissurotomy, otherwise known as the split brain procedure. This was introduced in the 1960s by Joe Bogan in California at Caltech uh, as a treatment for people with intractable epilepsy, and it saved lives and it certainly improved the quality of life for many people, unimaginably so. But it also gave a window into each hemisphere because you could interrogate one hemisphere on its own if you set up the experiment cleverly enough. And Roger Sperry, who some of you will know of, he won a Nobel Prize for his work on this, uh, did much of that early exploration. In any case, here is a patient who has had the procedure. Now, preoperative is the top column. You see that with both hands, the patient is able to draw a fairly recognisably good uh, cube with depth. After the operation, the left hand is still in touch with the right hemisphere and can draw a passably good cube. Somebody has just turned around from an operation. But the right hand is only getting input now from the left hemisphere. It can't get input across the corpus callosum from the right hemisphere. And so it draws what a child sees, a schematic cube in that is flattened out. This is something that I'm going to do because I love you so much and it pains me very deeply. But you came here to find out um, some things about what the differences between the hemispheres are. And it's really not okay for me to say, well, there is a 600-page book um, which you can go and read. Um, I would ask you, if you're at all interested, please to do that because what I'm going to say will seem very unnuanced, very simplistic, but believe me, that's because I'm sh shearing off all the qualifications and all the rest. But I want to give you something in the region of 10 to 12 dualities of difference between the two hemispheres. Now, none of them is absolute, but they are very strong chemists. If you take Iceland and Indonesia, okay, they have very different climates. And as a result, they have different landscape, they have different fauna, their flora, even the economies of the countries are probably influenced by the climate. But it is still true that the highest average temperature ever recorded in Iceland is higher than the lowest average temperature of the year in Indonesia. So there's often overlap. 
One of the first is the difference between the known and the new. The left hemisphere prefers what is familiar, what it has already got a pigeonhole for, and it wants to assimilate things to what it is familiar with. This is very useful if you are making quick decisions about should I get that. If you're the predatory hemisphere, you need to be quick and dirty, and it's much better to be known, to have things that you know and you feel certain about. If you're going, well, could be a rabbit, might be something else, I don't know, you'll, you'll go home. So, uh, and the new is really the prerogative of the right hemisphere. Uh, I make a distinction between newness and novelty, but uh, novelty being a rather sort of um, flimsy kind of affair in which you just rearrange things in a new way that you already knew. But really, truly, to see something new uh, is the uh, right hemisphere experience. Partly this is what you'd expect, because the right hemisphere is the one that is um, invigilating the periphery of the uh, field of attention, and new things usually come from the periphery. But it's also that uh, the right hemisphere is uh, more able to take in the whole picture and is therefore uh, able to make more qualified understandings of things and see that they're not the same as something else. And Ramachandran, V.S. Ramachandran, very famous neuroscientist, says that the right hemisphere is the devil's advocate because it's the one that says, no, it might, be, might not be what you think you already know. Um, and in relation to that, by the way, you can track new experience. When something is a new experience, a new piece of music, a new um, color, a new thought, a new whatever, a new experience of some kind, you can actually see it in imaging being more, um, as it were, processed in the right hemisphere while it's new, but when it becomes familiar, being passed over to the left hemisphere. This also goes with certainty and possibility. I've tried to make things easy here by putting the left hemisphere pole on the left and the right hemisphere pole on the right, thus um, completely disregarding normal uh, anatomical procedure. But there you go. So it makes it easier to understand. So the left hemisphere you could see as wanting to narrow down to certainty, while the right hemisphere is opening up to possibility or to potential. It is therefore less certain. And indeed, they have different manners. If you interrogate the left hemisphere, it seems very confident about things it doesn't know. Uh, it comes across completely uh, uh, um, authoritative on something that it really doesn't know the answer to. We know it doesn't. But the right hemisphere, even though it knows things, tends to be much more tentative about asserting So, as far as the right hemisphere is concerned, this can be a duck rabbit. But the left hemisphere is going, what do you mean a duck rabbit? It's not going to a duck or a rabbit, make up the bloody mind. And there is also a difference between fixity, you can see how these things go together, and flow. Now, everything from a micro, uh, indeed a molecule, up uh, to a human society uh, uh, requires a, a, a balance between forces for fixity and forces for flow. Uh, too much of one and it will fossilize, too much of the other and it will become chaotic. So we need all these things to be kept in balance. Uh, interestingly, the flow, the visual flow, gets broken down when you have uh, right posterior tumors and strokes sometimes and you start to see the world as rather like a juddering cinefilm, or um, stop-go animation would be probably a more up-to-date way, way of looking at it. Uh, and people actually describe it. They say it's like somebody switching the video recorder on and off very fast. So flow um, is not. There's a difference also in their intake of the parts versus the whole, a huge uh, 
topic, obviously. Uh, one rather interesting one is that the body, for example, is seen as a whole in the right hemisphere. It's the right hemisphere that has the so-called body image, which is not just a visual image, but an image in all modalities of the body. And the left hemisphere tends to see the body as composed of parts. It has an arm, a leg, and so on. And people who have uh, damaged the right hemisphere, sometimes you ask them to draw an elephant. They can't draw the shape of an elephant, they draw an ear. And then they draw a tail, and then they draw a hoof. So no concept of the relation of the parts, but they know the parts. How many people have already seen this? Yes. Quite a few of you. Uh, but enough of you hope not. Um, Anybody totally puzzled as to what this shows? Oh, there is somebody, so <laughs> otherwise I could just pass over it. Um, it's uh, it's an elevation dog. Let me try to do this without getting in the way. Uh, here is its nose, and there is its ear hanging down, and there is its back, tail, hind legs, front legs, and there is a crossing of a path in the shape of a and somebody was saying, aha, yes. And, and uh, psychologists, uh, being an imaginative lot, refer to this as the aha moment, when something is perceived as a whole, as a gestalt, as we say, and that is dependent on the right hemisphere. And I would ask you to note that there's no way you can go, that's a bit of shade, and that's a bit of dog. You can't put it together as a part. And in fact, although we think when we retrospect on how we understand the scene, we think with the left hemisphere, we must put the bits together, but actually we don't. What we see is the whole, and then our attention is directed to something of interest that is salient. You don't go into your living room and go, oh, a chair, a table, a television, ah, my living room. No, you see the whole thing, and, and the parts come, uh, come later. Now, uh, this is really just to show that there is a so-called hierarchy of attention, in other words, seeing the whole comes first. Most people see the H and the 4 before they see the E's and the eight. There is an exception to that in schizophrenia. Um, so anybody who saw the E's and eight doesn't have a quiet row of the There are other reasons, I, I do assure you. Um, these are all drawn by the people with right hemisphere spirits. This is a man, and you see a person has one of those and several of these. Uh, in the middle you have a bicycle where you can see that the actual relationship between the pedals and the wheels is wrong. The pedals are below the wheels and also bigger than the wheels. And that on the right is a house which we know because it's got one of those things on top. This is from a rather amusing animate which you can find on YouTube if you haven't already seen it. If you Google RSA Animate McGilchrist you'll find it. Um, I think it's quite a good little 10-minute cartoon that equates you with many of the points that um, I won't have time to make this morning. Um, but really what it shows is this difference of attention, but also how one-sided it is. After a right hemisphere stroke, so only the left hemisphere operative, you are only capable of attending to the right part of space. Not that you can't see, it's not a visual problem, the visual system is fine. The auditory system is fine, but you won't pay attention to a sound on the left, you won't pay attention to a sight on the left, and you'll read only the right-hand page of a book, or sometimes even just the right-hand ends of the sentences, or, or lines. Um, whereas it, that is not a mirror image of what happens after a left hemisphere stroke, because you then have an intact right hemisphere, which gives you the whole uh, picture. And interestingly, the extremes of attention, both left and right, are... Uh, made possible by the right 
And this is just to show that uh, patients sometimes forget to dress or shave uh, the left-hand half of their body. They will sometimes deny that there's anything there. So extreme is this, uh, and it's an intentional problem. It is not a sensory problem. It's a very important point. It's not that they can't perceive, it's that they don't attend, and therefore it doesn't exist. Attention brings the world into being. No, sorry, my eyesight say crap. I have to come down here and see what The explicit versus the implicit. So, in the, uh, as I think I've gone over this already, but the right hemisphere understands implicit meaning, the left hemisphere explicit meaning. Uh, and that is of enormous importance in many areas of life because, as I say, we totally misunderstand things when we think the best way to understand them is to drag them into the focus of attention, isolate them from their context, and make them amenable to a few words. And this is not going to be the case. Meaning in life is often implicit. The person who means most to you in the world, you can't make explicit what that meaning is. The piece of music that means most to you, you can't tell me what that meaning is. There's a very reduced kind of meaning which can be found in sentences, but most meaning comes from actually understanding the world. And so you can attend to it in such a way that you empty it of meaning with the left hemisphere, because it's only interested in use. Whereas you can enrich your understanding of the world by adopting the right hemisphere approach. So, uh, the left hemisphere is the one that's abstract, and the right is the one that sees things as always existing in a context, which alters what they are, embeds them in the world. And one of the contexts that we live in is the body. A very important issue. Very well explored in the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, for those of you who are interested in that. Uh, but anyway, the whole issue of embodiment has at last become an interesting one in philosophy. And context can completely change the nature of something. Uh, this has its amusing side. Uh, for example, in America there are four sizes of cereal packets. There's jumbo, which means very large. Then there's economy, which means large. Then there's family, which means medium. And finally there's large, which means small. <laughs> you can totally invert something by putting it in a different context. And much of human experience is not the same in the lab as it is in the real world. That's one of the problems in research, scientific research, into human experience today. The left hemisphere, as I think I've told you, is the one that sort of tends to generalize. The right hemisphere is the one that has the eye for what is unique. And this has important consequences, and I can think of a couple of rather sad examples. One is, uh, both of them actually happened to come from Switzerland. One was a Swiss farmer who uh, used to know all his cows by name, but afterwards found it difficult to tell a cow from a horse, never mind one cow from another. And there was a woman who'd made it her life's work to know all the birds in Switzerland. And after the stroke, the right hemisphere stroke, she rather plaintively commented, all the birds look the same. Uh, quantification versus qualification, because if, if you're going to understand the uniqueness of something, you need to see its qualities, the howness of it, not just the whatness of it. And this is a problem. The left hemisphere tends to see the what of things. And for a long time we were asking, what is it that the left and right hemisphere do that's different? Does one of them do math? Does the other one do language? Or both math and language in the left and artistic something, right? Everything, absolutely everything, is done by both hemispheres. And that's one of the reasons that people said there's nothing in it. But they missed the point that yes, everything is in both hemispheres. Both hemispheres contribute to it, 
but they do so in a reliably different way. The howness is everything. How we do things, how we say things, how we live our lives, how we attend is the key thing, not what. Then there is the difference between the inanimate and the animate. I know six studies on this, only one of them actually entirely separated, inanimate in the left and animate in the right. But it is true that machines and tools are coded only in the left hemisphere. And that's quite interesting because um, even in right, uh, sorry, left-handers who are using their right hemisphere to control uh, the left hand to operate tools and machines, they're still coded in the left hemisphere, which is the one of utility. Uh, they also have a difference in their attitude to the world. There is a procedure called the Weyler test, or, 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 uh, which is uh, done sometimes in uh, neurosurgery, uh, before, um, uh, for example, operating on the temporal lobes uh, and the frontal cortex for epilepsy. And uh, the idea of it is that for 15 minutes you can isolate one hemisphere at a time and find out which one is the speaking hemisphere, because as I said, it's not entirely obvious. And therefore you know that if the tumour is close to what would be the speech area, you're going to do a different kind of more tentative procedure. But this gave um, some clever neuropsychologists a, uh, a, an opportunity to interrogate each hemisphere on its own about itself. So they decided that they would give the subject uh, a personality inventory to fill out about itself and give the same thing to relatives and friends. And what they found was that the left hemisphere had a very high opinion of itself and a very unrealistic idea of what it could do. But the uh, right hemisphere was more realistic, but slightly on the pessimistic side about itself. And so they called the left hemisphere the polisher and the right hemisphere the tarnisher. Um, but this is sometimes very extreme. And the, 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 the people with right hemisphere damage, one of the reasons they're very hard to rehabilitate, quite apart from the fact they don't understand human meaning, is that they cannot understand that they've got problems. And they don't know what it is they don't know. And the very characteristic feature of left hemisphere thinking is it doesn't see what it is it doesn't see. And um, in this case, uh, it can be quite extreme. For example, uh, every medic will have seen this at least once or twice. Somebody comes in in the night having had a right hemisphere stroke. You go on the ward round in the morning and ask them, how are you? And they say, oh, I'm fine, thank you. Oh, that's very good. Um, any problems? No. Any problems specifically moving your left arm? No. Would you mind just showing? No, you see. And you say, well, I didn't see anything move, did you? No, no we didn't see anything move. And, and you, so you go right, this and bring it right round in front of them and say, now, could you move that? They go, oh, that's not my arm. Now, that is not, you're not talking here about somebody who is mad. But just because they can't accept that there's a problem here, take responsibility for it, they disown it. And that's a pretty good thing we got. But it happens in such a way. And this is probably the single most important of all, although it might not strike you as such at the moment. It's really the difference between the map and the territory. It's the difference between representation and what is present. Things presence to us in the right hemisphere. We don't have this verb in English. They didn't actually have it in German before Heidegger made a noun into a verb and talked about anwesen. But things come into presence, not just into our presence, but they become present to us, they're for us, in the right hemisphere. 
And in the left hemisphere, they are always schematically represented. There is always an image or an after impression, a representation, literally present after the fact. And that makes all the difference. Because if you miss, for some things, it's very important that they should be simplified and schematized. For example, a map is useful because it leaves most of everything in the world out. But unfortunately, if you try to live in the map, you will make a big mistake. There is a difference between the world that is mapped and the map of it. And that is not always appreciated by the left Now, uh, because this has been slightly abstract, this is a bit of uh, uh, light relief, really. Um, so these are experiments done in Russia um, in the old days. Um, and involved isolating one hemisphere at a time and getting people to do various things. It's not quite as barbaric as it's now. I'm not sure what we got past an English ethic think of it. Now what you see here is a tree as represented on the left by a normal intact individual. In the middle you see the right, sorry, the left hemisphere tree. So you see that there is a tree on the right but not much on the left. Nothing. And also, it is schematic. It is a kind of emblem of a tree rather than a living thing. Whereas you see the right hemisphere only tree has the, the shape and form and flow of a living thing. This really shows the same thing with flowers. You see how in the left hemisphere they become symmetrical geometric symbols rather than representing what a flower looks like in the real world. And this is really just to show how depth of perspective gets lost uh, in the left hemisphere. And these are all by people with left hemisphere uh, only uh, uh, You see again the, 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 the um, flattening of the, of the cube. But the fourth column is the one I want to draw your attention to for now. It's what happens to a human person uh, in the left hemisphere. Now, some people say, well, you know, the left hemisphere is the bright, um, bright one and the one that really doesn't understand it. And this poor, inarticulate right hemisphere, I don't know what it does. That was certainly that when I was at medical school, the right hemisphere wasn't doing anything. And um, uh, at the chap called Zaniger, Michael Zaniger in California, a very famous man who was there with Sperry and so forth and researched on split brain patients, is famous for saying um, that the right hemisphere has about the intelligence of the average chimpanzee. And what, what pleases me is that uh, and there can be no connection, I'm sure, between these facts, but since the publication of the Master of his Emissary, Gusanigo's um, lab has started churning out um, experiments that show that actually the right hemisphere is much more reliable and much more insightful and much more uh, in intelligent. Uh, and this is a nice uh, piece of research uh, uh, done in 2014, in which researchers took 136 subjects who had uh, experienced a uh, loss of intelligence uh, a deficit of their intelligence following an injury or stroke. And what they did is superimpose the 136 uh, images to find out where the key areas were. Now, what you see is the key areas are lit up here in orange or red. And they are all on the left side of this. You can see they're almost entirely on the left side. And that left side is the right hemisphere because we're looking at this in the conventional anatomical way, which the left is on the right and the right is on the left. So almost all of the intelligence is in the right hemisphere, according to this piece of research. It's also borne out by a number of other kinds of research, 
including looking at the in intellectual styles of and even the EEG tracings of highly gifted individuals and looking at what happens to IQ after hemispherectomy. Sometimes uh, people have a whole hemisphere completely removed. One illustration, since I'm talking about hemispherectomy, that is rather striking uh, of how the left hemisphere tends to take something literally is six weeks after an operation to remove uh, his right hemisphere. Uh, the surgeon asked the patient on review, uh, how do you feel? To which he responded, with my hands. <laughs> I'm going to conclude now by reflecting uh, a thought experiment. What would the world look like if, as I suspect, we are now over-reliant on the take of the left hemisphere and not taking into account enough the take offered by the right hemisphere. What would the world look like? Well, it would look a little like this. The first thing that would happen is we'd be lost of the broader picture because, of course, that's what the right hemisphere gives us. The knowledge would become replaced by uh, pieces of information, tokens or representations of things rather than by uh, uh, true knowledge, and particularly, of course, wisdom, which is individual and embodied, and therefore unpredictable and can't be assessed and measured properly, uh, much too undeniable, that would be uh, ruled out. In this world, there'd be a loss of the concepts of skill and judgment, which are again too much the products of experience, of a wise person's lived life, uh, and they would be replaced by algorithms and procedures that a computer could follow. And at the same time, things would become more abstract and more rarefied. In other words, the... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it means thingified, really. Uh, from Latin raised, I think. But basically what it, what it is, is that uh, the amphibious nature that we have of being both material and immaterial, conscious and spiritual, as well as embodied, um, that holding together, the right hemisphere is able to do, holding together opposite. The left hemisphere divorces. And so things become simultaneously very terrible and abstract and dry. Um, and at the same time, matter is treated as just matter. Um, what uh, Heidegger called treating it as resource, in other words, for exploitation, the typical attitude of the left hemisphere. So the natural world is simply valuable in as much as it funds resources or jobs or whatever it is for itself is no longer valuable. Um, bureaucracy would have a field day because according to Peter Berger, a famous sociologist, it has these uh, qualities. There will also be lots of the sense of uniqueness uh, and things would have to belong to categories in order to be taken notice of at all. Uh, in this world, quality, sorry, quality would be lost and quantity would become the only criteria. Um, people would assess things simply on the basis of things that can be measured. Um, there would be an overall mentality where the subtlety of gradations of consent or gradations of ideas and gradations of importance gets lost and things become black and white, right or wrong, good or bad, and things to be pursued or things to be avoided at all costs. Whereas Paracelsus, the uh, philosopher and chemist, already said in the 1600s, everything is poison. Alice is gift. Everything is poison. There is nothing that does not have poison in it. 
everything depends on the dose. In other words, everything is bad if there's too much of it. There is nothing so good that you can think of that just having more and more and more of it without a counterbalance or something else uh, would be bad. Reasonableness can be replaced by rationality. There's a kind of reasoning that is itself unreasonable. Uh, if you're a skilled barrister and you know how to uh, follow an argument in court, it would be a mistake to try and follow the same logic in the bedroom. This is kind of just an unreasonable way of thinking. And uh, there are many things that are just taken too far by uh, uh, a rationalist uh, without taking into account what is reasonable. And reasonableness used to be the mark of a truly educated and wise person. It was right judgment, which was really thought to be the end of education, the purpose of education. And in German, there are two words here, Verstand and Vernunft, but unfortunately we don't have this rather handy way of divaricating this uh, meaning. There'll be a failure of that not very common thing at all these days on the sense. Systems will be designed to maximize many utilities and a loss of social cohesion which is the right hemisphere's ability to empathize, to understand, to feel its way into another person's world. And we would be depersonalized, turned into something approximating machines. There'd be paranoia and lack of trust, because the point of the left hemisphere is to control things, things it can't understand how to control, it's afraid of, and becomes paranoid. And this is, uh, of course, a characteristic paranoia of schizophrenia. And as I've mentioned, schizophrenia is very like right hemisphere failure. And you can't see them. You can't see All of them? Yes. The top one says quantity becoming the only criteria. Then it says either or. And then it says reasonableness replaced by rationality. Then it says failure of common sense. And then it says systems designed to maximize utility. Loss of social cohesion. Depersonalization. Paranoia and lack of trust. And so, in that world, um, there would be, there would have to be, God forbid, CCTV cameras on every street corner, and there would be talk of a data bank of DNA and things like that. Um, there would be a need for total control. Uh, from now on, I'm going to be reading them out, so I won't need to repeat them. I hope. Um, the need for total control, um, because that's what makes the left hemisphere feel comfortable. And uh, quite a, uh, far from the left hemisphere being unemotional, the most lateralized emotion is anger, and it lateralizes to the left. And that would become, anger and aggression would become part of the chain which covers difficulties And we would see ourselves as passive victims of other people's wrongdoing, not taking responsibility for it ourselves. You know, this arm doesn't work, nothing to do with me, it belongs to the next step. Uh, then art would become conceptual uh, with visual art lacking a sense of depth and a distorted or bizarre perspective. It's interesting that uh, depth in space, perspective, came in with the Renaissance and went out in the 20th century. And harmony in music, which is depth in sound, uh, came in in the Renaissance and went out in the 20th century. And music would be reduced to little more than rhythm because rhythm is the only aspect of music that is normally catered to by the left hemisphere uh, in ordinary subjects. I'm distinguishing here from professional musicians who have more widely distributed um, understandings of music. But for most of us, harmony and melody are definitely dependent on the right hemisphere. 
And maybe it will become deduced, excessive, and lacking in concrete references, lots of abstract nouns, the sort of stuff that comes in those lever arch files of policies and procedures which um, uh, 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 beautify and enrich the workplace. And uh, the deliberate undercutting of the sense of awe or wonder, which the right hemisphere is able to understand, that there are things well beyond our understanding. The left hemisphere says, What do you mean? I can understand everything, because there only seems to be things you can understand. Flow would become just the sum of this infinite series of pieces. We would discard tacit forms of knowing, everything would have to be made explicit. And we would become, therefore, entangled in a network of small, complicated rules. That expression comes from de Tocqueville visiting America in 1830. He saw it as the future then. How prescient is that? And we would all be, as Descartes proudly described himself, more spectators than actors in the world, sitting on the sofa with our six-pack, observing things on a screen. And all this would be accompanied with a dangerously unwarranted optimism. Gosh, I'm glad we haven't gone there. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, I'm just going to round off now with uh, just some reflections on attention. Attention literally means to reach out a hand to something. Uh, and you can do that, of course, to grab or to grasp, as the right, as left hemisphere uh, would see it. But you can also do it to explore, to create, and to form a bridge with something. And here you see the ultimate case of this uh, God who mugged up on the hemisphere hypothesis and creating man by. Um, vivifying first the right hemisphere, uh, going to the left hand of Adam. Uh, of course, uh, God is really the brain. Uh, is, I don't know if you've seen this before, but uh, it is thought that uh, Michelangelo did seriously actually uh, encode knowledge of the brain in the Sistine Chapel uh, because the section of the brain was not something that one was supposed to do, but Michelangelo is known to have dissected corpses. Um, and uh, it's possible that he's saying that we refer here to the brain as the, as the creative um, chat. This is from a favourite place of mine, the Tarot Theatre of the Church of the Saviour in Hora in Istanbul, um, which shows another kind of reaching out of a hand to give life. Um, because you're very interested in spiritual matters, I have included this rather difficult slide. I'll, I'll just go through rather quickly. There's a German philosopher called Max Scheler, who was um, by, called by Heidegger the only person who really understood Heidegger. So, and he also called him the greatest philosopher of his age. Uh, Scheler uh, took uh, philosophy into the realm of value. He had the idea that values are not breakable down into something else, like how useful they are or how pleasurable they are, but they had that value is something that is in the universe, rather as Kant thought that morals were a reason for believing in God. Not that we have moral values because God told us that we have them, but that we know there's a God because there are moral values at all. And he had a pyramid of these, starting with those of use and pleasure at the bottom, moving up to the ladies therefore, values of vitality, which would be things like magnanimity, courage, greatness of mind, uh, uh, and so forth, uh, as opposed to their opposites, mean-mindedness and smallness and timidity. And then the values of the of Geist, Geist, in German Geist means both intellect and spirit. And these are effectively things like duty, goodness and truth, and, and uh, justice. 
And uh, the, the top of the tree is the holy. That's Heinrich. Now, I put this up really because it seems to me that the writers understand that the lower levels tend to support the upper level. The chap in Oxford, whose name begins with D, has a different theory, which is that everything um, uh, up here is really just of utility to the species, being you know about beauty because of sexual selection. I find this not a powerful argument when confronted with plants and accompanying plant eaters, or with the equation e to the i pi equals minus one, but it's apparent to do with sexual selection. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the holy is just what holds groups together and so forth. So the, the values run in the opposite direction now. And this is something I'm going to talk about this afternoon, which is how important creation is. This is a powerfully creative act. This is how something comes into being. By being unearthed, by being discovered, not invented in the modern sense, by being put together. In fact, the word invent originally meant like discover to find something, but more recently we've come to think we make things, but actually we don't. We allow them or we don't allow them. And what Mike Lantern is doing here is clearing the way to create something, not putting something together in the past. I've talked enough, and I don't want us to miss lunch, so let's um, have some questions.